Hey everyone, Eric Renier here, and welcome to the 54th episode of the RIT Podcast. This week, I wanted to chat about two leadership races that are heading in different directions. The Conservatives appear set to be taken over by Pierre Poilievre, and his win seems even more likely, after it was revealed earlier this week the kind of fundraising numbers his campaign has put up. Meanwhile, the Greens are also searching for a new leader, but they might end up with their old leader again, as Elizabeth May seems likely to make a bid to take her party back. So to discuss both of these contests, I'm joined this week by the CBC's Aaron Wary. Hey, Aaron. Hey. So uh, we'll start with the Conservatives, and there was a debate earlier this week, if we can call it that. Um, now, I didn't, I have to admit, I didn't watch uh, anything beyond a few little clips and read a couple of coverage of it. Um, I think you had to watch the whole thing, and uh, I wonder if you had any, any, uh, you know, what was your broad theme thoughts about what happened at this, at this quote-unquote debate? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't much of a debate, right? And and uh, it, you know, just from a staging perspective and a, and everything else, it, it wasn't the greatest. It wasn't the greatest debate I've ever watched. But you know, the the biggest problem was the fact that Pierre Polyev wasn't there. Uh, and if you don't have the front runner in the debate, it's not much of a debate. Uh, I think, so a couple of things I think are, are kind of actual takeaways. One is, you know, the fact that, that Polyev not only skipped this debate, uh, but that he uh, <laughs> rained uh, criticism down on the party while doing so, and then went out to Regina and held an event and mocked the candidates who did participate, I think is a, you know, it kind of sends the message that like, if you think, you know, Pierre Polyev's anti-establishment politics, uh, if you're a conservative who thinks that's always going to be directed just at liberals and, and new Democrats and the media, academics and the governor of the Bank of Canada, you know, don't don't lull yourself into that false sense of security. Like his anti-establishment politics extend apparently to, you know, the Conservative Party. Uh, we'll see whether that changes to some degree when he if he becomes leader. Uh, but you know, it, I think it's a it 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 underlines the fact that to Polyev, you're either with him or against him, and uh, you shouldn't assume that just because you're a conservative that you're necessarily not going to fall into the latter group. The other thing I think you know that kind of came out of this debate is, you know, some last sort of parting words or or final words from from Jean Charest, and and maybe to a certain extent Scott Aitchison. Uh, you know, both of them kind of saying, but particularly Sheree saying, you know, anger is not a is not a plan. It's not a political program. And you need to channel, you know, if people are angry, you need to channel them into, you know, sort of positive solutions. And, uh, you know, I, I think that could have been an argument for Sh that Sheree could have used and maybe succeeded with to a certain extent in this race. I don't think it's, I think it's coming too late for him. But I think if, 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 you know, the Polyev campaign, if he, if, or if Polyev's time as leader ends in tears, you know, I guess Sheree gets to say he told you so, that this wasn't going to go well. But I, it, it kind of feels like a last kind of gasping uh, warning from Sheree, you know, before uh, Polyev becomes leader. I'm not sure who would have been watching that debate in terms of who was still on the fence. Um, because if you're on the fence between Sheree, Aitchison, and, and Babber, I'm not sure who you are exactly. There's, it's yeah. a very strange kind of uh, dynamic. And in all likelihood, though you had 
only one of the top three candidates actually participating in this. So it, it was a very strange thing that it kind of went ahead. But I guess conservatives had to go ahead with it. They couldn't let one of the candidates and then Liz and Lewis, who also didn't attend, uh, decide whether this goes ahead. But clearly $50,000, uh, not enough of a disincentive to get people to not participate. Both of those campaigns were fined 50,000 bucks, but they've got that money to burn. So I don't know what parties do about this in the future, especially um, how do you make people show up to this thing if it's not in their interest anymore? Yeah, I don't know that you can. And I, it's just, to that degree, it's kind of remarkable, right? Like it's not like this debate was organized by, uh, you know, a bunch of new Democrats or, you know, uh, downtown liberal elites. Uh, this was a, a, a debate organized by the Conservative Party and a leadership organizing committee that was led by, you know, Ian Brody, Stephen Harper's former chief of staff and, and a foundational figure, you know, in the in the the rise of the kind of modern Conservative Party. Uh, and uh, and the party had taken sort of an informal vote of party members whether they wanted a third debate. And I, I believe it was like 60 percent of them said, yes, they wanted a third debate. So. You know, it's and then, you know, to be fined $50,000 like that, presumably, unless I'm wrong, that's money that you're taking out of the money that had been donated to you by by party members. And you're using it to pay off a fine for not showing up to a debate that party members seemingly wanted to see. And I just don't I mean, it is kind of a remarkable thing. You know, we we've seen leaders kind of manipulate debate schedules and candidates not go to local debates during elections. And it's not completely unheard of. And, it, you know, you can make the strategic argument, obviously, that Bahaliyev's the front runner. He, you know, he's not, he's obviously going to try to to minimize the amount of risk and he doesn't want to, you know, unnecessarily put himself in harm's way. But it is kind of remarkable that like a, a, a politician or two politicians in this case can look at all that and say, yeah, screw it, we're not going. Uh, and that's where I come back to you know, Polyev and to, to, an, to a certain extent, Leslie Lewis is, you know, anti-establishment politics. Like this is like, it's not, you know, don't assume if you're a conservative that he's just going to be throwing rhetorical bombs at people you don't like. Uh, he His anti-establishment politics, like this is kind of a logical continuation of that. I, I would say for Leslie Lewis, I think that if it was Polyev who more or less gave her permission to pull out of it, right? If Polyev would have participated, she would have been there. Um, but it's almost as if he is bigger than the party at this stage. And if he doesn't want to go, then it's not a real debate. It's sort of like when we had those uh, discussions about holding debates during elections when Stephen Harper said he wouldn't go. And everyone said, well, then it's not a real debate if the if the incumbent doesn't come, if the main, <laughs> the front, the person who's leading the country, uh, the prime minister doesn't show up to a debate, there's no point in having it. So it, it is a strange dynamic that in a way almost confirms that Poilievre at this stage has a bit more power than the party itself. Yeah, which is a remarkable thing. Uh, you know, it's, I, I guess you could have said the same was true of Trudeau in, in 2012 and 2013, that he was so, uh, he had such a constituency of his own that uh, it was sort of be, it was sort of bigger than the party. Uh, you, you know, I mean, granted, it, his constituency was built on sort of the, the, the sort of traditional liberal voters and, and, People were associated him and his name with the Liberal Party. So I don't know if it's necessarily quite the same. But I do think that, like, you know, Polyev is in a position now where he 
his sway over the party and his constituency sway over the party is 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 something the party's going to have to contend with and uh you know it's unclear sort of where that all goes and and whether everybody's going to be on board with it and and uh you know kind of what it means for the party but at this point it it does seem like you know that i don't know that senior conservatives are really going to be able to kind of direct polyev so much as polyev is 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 going to direct this ship entirely uh, you mentioned, you know, whether everybody's going to be happy with it. There was a word this week of uh, Joël Gaudet still saying that he might not be willing to sit in a conservative party led by Pierre Poilievre, but he's really the only name. There's also a senator, but uh, I mean, senators come and go in terms of what caucus are sitting in in that in that in the Senate these days. But um, you know, there is that question. But it, you look at the fundraising figures. So Pierre Poilievre raised four million dollars, which is what was reported by Elections Canada. They didn't process all of the fundraising in June, which just shows how much fundraising uh, that came in through the leadership campaign. So the Polyev campaign is claiming they've raised 5.3 million from 45,000 contributors, which is an enormous number. That's usually what a national party can do if they have a good quarter. Um, that's a huge amount of money. Jean Charest, he raised 1.4 million, probably more than that after things are, are counted. That's also a huge amount of money. Any other campaign raising a million dollars is good. I remember when Peter McKay uh, the first time we got fundraising figures, or I think he was the first person to announce he raised a million dollars in 2020, everybody was very impressed. And now we look at these numbers from Jean Charest and we're like, eh, yeah, that's, he's doomed. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I, I don't, I mean, I don't think Charest, like there's been moments in this campaign when Charest looked like he was kind of getting around to a, to a, to a solid comprehensive argument against Polyev. <laughs> and then it just sort of seemed to never quite get the pieces put together. And it, and, you know, they were going hard. His the Shere campaign was trying to go hard on Polyev on Twitter and online about the fact that he wasn't showing up to the debate. And and it, but it feels like too little, too late. And it just doesn't feel like it was it came fast enough or hard enough for Shere, or that he kind of put it to get all the pieces together in time. Uh, you know, to the larger question of the party going forward, I do think you know it's interesting to hear like Aaron O'Toole has come out and said. Uh, you know, that he's a bit worried about populism and where things are going. Scott Aitchison makes these kind of oblique, vague references to we can't be the party of division, we can't just be railing against government. But then he doesn't quite say, you know, sort of what happens if that does happen. It, it will be interesting to me to see whether, you know, there are conservatives who say, uh, you know what, I'm not really on board for this. I don't really like where Polly is going. And and I'm going to step aside. And I think that question will become almost becomes more interesting if he continues to succeed in pile up fundraising numbers and and the party does OK in the polls, because it's a lot easier to go along to get along when the party's doing well. If the party suddenly goes down to 25 percent or 20 percent or or it looks like Pierre Polyev is a net negative for the party, you know, it might be easy for people to, to step aside. But, you know, do they have the kind of uh uh moral certainty i guess to say i'm not on for this if if the party's doing well and 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 i don't think that's a completely abstract question because you know we've seen populism in other countries in different cases and not every case is the same but the question gets raised of whether sort of you know people within the party structure are willing to stand up and say no this isn't this isn't a healthy way to do things i'm going to step aside or i'm going to stand in the way of this and the you know on the evidence it looks like when a populist comes along 
party, you know, mainstream senior figures and parties are more than happy to go along with it if it means succeeding. And so I, I do think it is an open question of whether the Conservative Party, if there are people who have misgivings about the way uh, Polyev does politics, whether they're content to kind of say those things quietly behind closed doors, but not do anything about it, or whether they're willing to kind of stand up and say, actually, this isn't what I signed up for. You know, you can th talk about uh, examples on the left uh, as well. Think of Jeremy Corbyn in the Labour Party. Um, at, there was a time when it seemed like he had a lot of momentum, he had a decent election result, and it seemed like people within the party weren't very happy with him, but they were willing to go along for a little while. And then once things started to tank, he was that was it, right? So it, it is easy to go along when things are going well. I guess the challenge is what happens when things aren't going well. And for Jean Charest, you know, I know I'm not sure if he's considering starting a new party on his own. But, you know, he raised as much money as the NDP did. Um, if he gets 25% of the vote, of uh, 400,000 people who vote, that's 100,000 members. There is the potential for a viable party there uh, in terms of just uh, an organization and a base of fundraising. But uh, it is a big step. It is like a Rubicon yeah. kind of thing to do, to kind of quit and start a new party and try to get people to, to join you. Because the argument, yeah, and you're right, and because the argument will always be, look, you're not going to form government that way. Uh, you're just going to split the vote on the right. Uh, you're just going to doom us to, uh, you know, more more uh, liberal victories in elections. Uh, why would you bother doing it? And I, so, and I, and I, like, that's the very practical argument against it. I, I think it comes down to whether people think there is something fundamentally they can't agree with uh, or that, that, that the Conservative Party needs to break up because, you know, in the long term, that's that's better for 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 Canadian politics in some way. Uh, and I don't know whether people are ready to cross that line. Uh, it is interesting when you put it that way that, you know, Jean Charest, if you if you ignore how well Polyev's doing, Charest actually looks like he's doing OK. Uh, I don't know that Charest is, is necessarily the figure to lead that party, but it is an interesting development that Charest was able to, uh, you know, at least put forward some kind of a viable campaign at a time when you would think the party was completely turning away from uh, what he stood for and, and who he was and, and, you know, the things he's done in his past. Uh, you know, if, you know, I think even, I think even Polyev's campaign said sort of last night, like, oh, you know, a failed liberal premier who loves carbon taxes. Uh, you know, if that, you would think that that would, you know, you know, most conservatives would sort of agree with that, with that take at this point. But if, if Charest is able to mount, was able to kind of show that there is a constituency for that, then it is interesting to wonder where that constituency goes when this race is over. If you were trying to imagine and create the perfect leader of a sort of a new progressive conservative party, you wouldn't come up with Jean Charest because of his his the baggage he has and, you know, the the fact that he's been around for so long. You would imagine someone different. But um, it, it is interesting to think about what's going to happen next. But eventually, um, you know, the rubber will hit the road. And, you know, let's go back to those fundraising numbers. Poliev raising that much money, more than the Conservative Party did um, in the quarter. And usually the the Conservatives, if they can get $5 million, uh, that's a good quarter for them. Um, so like, what are the chances that he takes over and the party just gets behind him and things are going well and you know they, they start looking at the next election? I mean, I think that's sort of the likeliest scenario to me. Uh, you know, I, I think 
all the incentives in politics are for parties and partisans to hang together because uh, as soon as they start breaking up, as soon as they start disagreeing with each other, uh, they tank their chances of winning and winning is better than losing. And, uh, you know, it, it's, 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 it's easier to sort of go along and try to hold the fort together and, and hope to succeed that way. Uh, I, I don't like lot, you know, lots of people will speculate about the party breaking up. They have speculated about the party breaking up or a new party or, you know, all sorts of scenarios. But I think that's kind of fantasy baseball. I, I, I think all, you know, I think in, in nine times, 99 times out of a hundred partisans are going to stick together because that's the way you get office and your side having being in office is always viewed as better, you know, ultimately than the other side having office. And so you're going to stick together. I don't, I, I think I'd be shocked if there was another uh, political party that formed or if the party broke up, but I, I, you know, there is that one time in a hundred where you wonder whether, you know, the, the, the comments that O'Toole has made and, and uh, the Sheree camp, what the Sheree campaign has shown and, and even some of the comments that Scott Aitchison has made, you wonder if that leads to something, even if it's not another party, whether that leads to some people, uh, you know, sort of putting their hand up and, and saying, I'm not going to run in the next election. Uh, but again, I, I don't, I think people get ahead of themselves and assume that the most dramatic scenario is going to play out where I think uh, all things considered, the most likely scenario is that Polyev leads the Conservative Party into the next election. And, and maybe there are a couple defections, but otherwise the party hangs together. Yeah, or some MPs who decide not to run again, that kind of thing, nothing nothing too uh, dramatic. We kind of saw that with the Ontario election. A lot of MPPs who uh, dated from the pre-Ford era seemed to be uh, moving on because, you know, they didn't have a lot of time to think about it when he became leader in 2018. So we'll see if that kind of thing happens. But if, if it is Poliev who wins, which, I mean, everybody assumes it is going to be, it would be, I, I would term it maybe the upset of, of it would be a huge upset if, Probably I didn't end up winning this. Um, like it would be hard to think of one that would be a bigger upset in Canadian history, just in terms of how uh, the juggernaut he seems to have. But how does he match up? Do you think right now in 2025 against uh, Trudeau, against maybe not Trudeau, against a government that's in power for 10 years? Is you know is the energy we see from his campaign is it very specific to his small kind of base of supporters within the party? Uh, but can it translate to electoral success? I think he's the most formidable of the conservative leaders Trudeau has faced. With the, you could make of the possible exception of Harper in 2015, although Harper at that point had a lot of baggage and was 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 the incumbent and was was pretty vulnerable. I think Polyev, you know, you can try to explain it away and say, oh, it's you know, it's very specific or it's uh it's a it's a it's the conservative base but it's not beyond that but i like i think his i don't i think he would be making i think the liberals would be making a massive mistake if they just assumed that this was a a passing phenomenon or a limited appeal kind of thing i think polyev has talent and he's shown an ability to get people riled up and and i think the ground the sort of uh, real world economic and political ground is there for him to take advantage of, right? We've got inflation. We could have a recession. Uh, housing prices are 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 far too high for for most people. You know, this is this is the kind of situation where somebody like Polyev could really capitalize on it. I mean, that said, I don't. I think 
I don't know that, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think it's almost impossible to predict how this plays out. I think, I think Polyev is a high, feels to me like a high variance. Like it, it's, he, I could, I could totally imagine him leading the party, the conservative party to 40% in, in the popular vote in the next election. I could totally imagine his politics uh, not playing very well and then going down to 25%. It feels like there's a, a pretty wide range of possibilities here, but I think he is the biggest test the liberals have faced in terms of conservative leaders. Uh, and uh, he has a lot of potential to uh, to make some serious inroads with uh, with kind of the great, you know, the general voter and 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 put a, you know, pose a real challenge to Trudeau. I think one of the biggest issues that conservatives have had for the last few elections is that they've assumed that a lot of voters or every almost all Canadians dislike Trudeau as much as they do. And it sounds like and it seems to me like the liberals could make the same mistake if they assume that everybody will dislike Polyev as much as they do, because um, clearly this is not this is not a relationship that is a positive one between the two parties that, uh, um, you know, liberals love to hate Polyev and Polyev loves to hate the liberals. Right. So um, yep. it's not setting up for a, it's not setting up for an uplifting campaign whenever it will be. <laughs> But it's but the comparisons the comparison I think is is apt because Trudeau led leads conservatives to do to do one of two in, in the, the the sort of decade that Trudeau has been around uh, he's led conservatives to sort of make one of two mistakes either they underestimate him and they kind of go well this guy's a lightweight or they they get so riled up by his presence and his politics that they they almost overplay their hand they swing too hard and they miss. And uh, and and then Trudeau takes advantage of the situation, and and I I, I think there it, I can um, you know very plausibly imagine the Liberals having the same reaction to Polyev and thinking this guy is a fringe extreme candidate and will take him out easily, uh, or they think you know or they get they get so riled up by uh, his politics and his manner that they're going to swing too hard and miss and. Uh, I, I think they need to kind of think about it in those terms if they're going to try to figure out how to how to beat him because it, it is he's not you know this is he's not a rookie politician he's not uh, he he gives some thought to what he's doing and he's clearly got some talent and uh, and the situation is to his advantage to a certain extent at this point it's a, an incumbent government that's been around for seven years. Uh, the economic situation is hard. Uh, people have had a very difficult uh, two or three years with the pandemic. Uh, this is uh, this is a situation that starts to tilt in Polyev's favor at some point, and uh, the Liberals have to figure out both in in their words and their actions how they're going to combat that. And with every passing year, uh, just you would increase the odds that there's a change of government, right? So probably of being the person who's there that the, he gets the first shot at it. So, um, so that's the conservatives, you know, they can look towards the next election with some, you know, with some optimism, uh, you know, they can, whether or not it'll come, you know, whether they'll actually win the next election, we'll have to wait and see. Um, the Greens, maybe not so optimistic about the future, you know, they've been having some trouble with uh, fundraising, They're, they talk about how they don't really have any money, they've had to make cuts within their own organization. Obviously, there's been the leadership turmoil for the last few years. And there is actually a leadership race happening right now. Uh, we are going to find out who is the list of candidates at the end of the month. 
Um, the list of potential candidates is not one that I don't think anybody outside of the Green Party would recognize any name, with the exception of Elizabeth May, who uh, seems to be wanting to come back. She was leader for 13 years and, and resigned in 2019, said it was time for some new energy, uh, and renewal for the party, and now she wants to come back. So um, what does that mean for the Greens if it's Elizabeth May again, even if she says she wants to run with a kind of a co-leader candidate? It's Elizabeth May again. Um, it's not the new Green Party. No. Uh, yeah, it's so, you know, when she left, in, when she announced she was leaving in 2019, I thought I thought it was pretty clear that the Green Party had kind of reached its ceiling with Elizabeth May as leader. Uh, it, you know, it had gotten back up the popular vote to, I think it was 6.5 or 6.6%. Uh, it had won three seats, but I think it had probably gone as far as Elizabeth May was going to be able to take it. Uh, you know, they'd gone into that campaign. It feels like a, it feels like a lifetime ago, but they'd gone into that campaign with people thinking, oh, maybe the Greens can surprise some people. Maybe this is their chance for a breakthrough. Maybe they can even surpass the NDP in the seat count. Because uh, the NDP was really vulnerable going into that campaign. Uh, and uh, then the Greens kind of fumbled it away. Elizabeth May had a had a tough start to the campaign, and they, you know, they ended up okay, but they didn't, you know, have that big breakthrough. And it, it did feel like okay, they, you know, Elizabeth May's taken them this far. It's time for somebody else. I guess the the way to spin it now is uh, if you're if you're trying to make a case for bringing Elizabeth May back is uh, they've now crashed through the floor that Elizabeth May seemingly had set for them, and. Uh, even getting back to where she had taken them, you know, six percent in the poll in the in the popular vote would be a major victory for them at this point. And so, you know, she's a known quantity. Uh, she has a gift for getting attention. People know who she is. Uh, some, you know, uh, at least some people seem to like her. You know, maybe you bring her back and try to stabilize this thing uh, because that's what they need right now, right? Like it looks like they are in free fall and they need somebody to kind of put the floor back under them uh but you know as i wrote in a piece earlier this week like even if 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 you make the case that she should come back and that that's a good answer for this party right now her whatever however long she's in leader in the in the, however long this sort of second go-round lasts the focus really needs to be on building a party that can survive without her and can can find other leadership candidates who can take this party and and move it forward and, and a party apparatus that isn't gonna turn on itself uh, whenever that new leader comes in or if, if that new leader, you know, if there's difficulties. Uh, it, 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 you just can't, you know, Elizabeth May can't be the leader forever. Uh, and uh, the Greens need to find a way to, to have somebody else's leader and they need to find a party apparatus that that can get them uh, can can kind of stand up to whatever pressures come after it. In your piece, you had uh, referenced Joe Clark coming back as leader of the PCs after Sheree uh, left. Um, and it was kind of the same scenario. Someone needs to come in. This party's not in good shape. Uh, here's someone who has a familiar face, but it, it wasn't really a sign that this party was on track for anything great in the future, right? It, it it doesn't really give the signal of renewal and uh, momentum, something new, um, which maybe is why she wants to run with a co-candidate, which gives the something a bit different. We we have seen this in green parties elsewhere in the world. Uh, Quebec Solidaire uses that system in Quebec. 
Um, though in reality, it always ends up just being one candidate who is put forward as the premier candidate who takes part in the debates and all that kind of thing. So uh, I don't know. I'm not sure what to make of of that attempt to try to bolt on a two leader system to a parliamentary system is not really friendly to that. Yeah, it's not. It is a it doesn't it feels like, uh, it, you know, it feels like you're sort of conceding that you're not going to be in government, right? Like you're saying, like, well, we've got co-leaders. Uh, you know, we're not, you don't, don't worry about asking us who, which one of us would be prime minister because we're not, we're realistically, we're not going to get there anytime soon. I think the co-leader system works, could work in this situation if it's used to sort of take the known quantity of Elizabeth May and the, the sort of, uh, her sort of built-in brand and use it to kind of piggyback on a, uh, a new kind of generation of leaders or someone who could lead the party going forward after she steps aside. Uh, I think that could have some promise. I mean, I think it, you know, if, if there is a lot of work that this party has to do internally, uh, there could be some value in having two people uh, to sort of uh, share that workload and, and, and you know, while Elizabeth May is sort of out, you know, waving the flag for the party, maybe somebody else is is working on building the party structure up. But I, you know, I do think it comes back, you know, that Joe Clark comparison. He, you know, he kept the party alive for five years. You know, he, he won some sort of admiration amongst, uh, you know, people who followed politics. But, you know, let's not forget that he stepped down in May of 2003. And before the calendar year was over, that party didn't exist anymore. Uh, and that's not a that's not a model I don't think anybody wants to follow. And the Greens need to. So that's I mean, I think that's the lesson to the Greens. And as I wrote in the piece, like, I think the Greens need to face up to the existential question of like, you know, if the PC party can disappear, uh, there's no reason the Greens can't. And as much as you would think, you know, this is the Green Party's moment because the climate is such a salient issue now. You know, we're well past the time when the climate was a fringe issue. Uh, it, this should be a moment for the Green Party to to really assert itself. Uh, it, they can't take for granted that uh, they are 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 on a uh, walk in a very thin line at this point. And if uh, if they don't kind of get their act together and figure this out in the next year or so, there's no reason to believe they couldn't just sort of fade away as a as a political entity, at least at the federal level. Yeah, at the provincial level, they have some uh, viable parties that are doing well enough in, in parts of Atlantic Canada. They're either second or third. Uh, Replace the NDP in Atlantic Canada, in some cases replacing the Liberals. But it's a very different brand of Green Party politics there. It's very anti um, the old system. It's it's more anti-partisan, non-partisan than it is the kind of Green support you see in British Columbia, uh, for example. And, and the party itself has lots of divisions. It started a bit more of a center-right kind of party. Elizabeth May's background was she once advised Brian Mulroney. Uh, there's elements within the party of the eco-socialists that are very far to the left. There's there's lots of issues related to Israel. For some reason, the party in Canada that's most split over Israel seems to be the Green Party, which does not seem to, it doesn't make any sense to me. I don't think anybody's looking for leadership on Palestine-Israel issues from the Green Party. There are a lot of issues there that they have to deal with internally before they even get to the question you said, what's the point of this party when you have the new Democrats and the liberals, while they might not be perfect, have climate change and fighting climate change as one of their priorities. It, it is a it is a puzzle for the Greens. What's next for them? 
Yeah, it's hard, you know, it's hard to parse the enemy Paul experience and figure out sort of where, how to, how to apportion blame between her and the party apparatus and senior figures and so on and so forth. But it, it's clear, like, the, I think the takeaway from that whole, uh, uh, you know, era was that, uh, you know, this just is not, this does not seem to have been a party that was set up to kind of uh, uh, manage itself in the post-May era. And it, you know, so it needs to figure that out. It can't, it can't be so precarious. And and then I think, yeah, you have to figure out what this party is like. Does this party need to exist? And if so, why? Uh, hmm. Because, you, you know, uh, we were talking about about kind of fantasy baseball in the last in the last discussion. But like you can very easily sit back and go, well, why don't the Greens and the Democrats just merge? Like why don't the kind of the eco left parts of the Green Party just join the, the NDP and 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 you know what other other what other whatever other elements there are of the Green Party can just sort of fade away. And, you know, except for the fact that it, it seems to exist at the provincial level in a certain like in a in a kind of resilient, uh sustainable way in some places. It's not necessarily clear why the federal party, the federal Green Party needs to exist at this moment. And they need to, you know, not only kind of like rebuild, but sort of re-justify themselves. And, you know, so to come back to Elizabeth May, like it makes sense to bring her back if, you know, she's sort of a stopgap solution that can be part of rebuilding the whole apparatus. Uh, but she's certainly not a savior for this party. And they have, they still have to figure out what they're gonna do uh, with someone else's leader and, and where that other leader is gonna come from. And where they would run. I think that Elizabeth May's biggest asset she can bring is her seat, which is a relatively winnable one for another green leader because they only have the two MPs. Mike Morris doesn't want to run to be the leader. And Enemy Paul could have used the seat in the House. It would have made things a lot easier easier for her. So, um, But this doesn't seem like it's going to open up a path for someone else to run in her riding and have a seat in the House of Commons. So, um, yeah, I, I'm not sure... It just feels like the Greens have had a rough few years since 2019. It's just been an issue after an issue and and lots of decisions that don't seem to make much sense from the outside as to why a party that's why a party would do this. Uh, I think the enemy Paul story, regardless of who was to blame, there seems to be blame that is all around there. Um, it, it was just not what a party that is always fighting for relevance needs, not these questions yeah. about um, are you a serious party? Yeah, it's it's kind of remarkable that a party that is that uh, is 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 fighting for every inch of ground it can get would lose perspective so greatly that it would they would kind of turn on themselves and and start fighting internally because they just don't have that luxury. I mean, no party really does, but you know, a party that's that's lucky to get the six percent in the polls really, really doesn't have that luxury, and uh, they you know they have to come out of this leadership one way or another with uh, some kind of direction and unity and uh, the threat hanging. I think I really do think the threat hanging over them is whether this party really continues or not. All the Conservatives are choosing their leader in a little over a month, September 10th. The Greens have a two-stage leadership process, which is, um, again, a, a little unusual, but 
we'll have the leader of the party in November, and then we'll have some answers to what's next from both of these parties, uh, <laughs> which will be helpful. So uh, thanks so much, Aaron. I really appreciate you coming on. You uh, put in some work watching the debate last night, so I think you get extra credit for that. And uh, I appreciate you uh, sharing your insights with us today. I'm just here to help you help fill you in on what you missed, Eric. Thanks again to Aaron Wary. In addition to the leadership fundraising, Elections Canada also published party fundraising for the second quarter. The Conservatives led the way with $4.4 million, followed by the Liberals at $2.8 million, the NDP at $1.2 million, the Greens at $440,000, the Bloc Québécois at $240,000, and the People's Party at $200,000. The Conservatives announced how many members will be eligible to vote in the leadership contest. It'll be just under 679000 It was just under 262000 in the 2020 leadership. Membership had dropped to about 170,000 at the end of 2021. On Saturday, the New Brunswick Liberals will be selecting their new permanent leader, who replaces Kevin Vickers, who stepped down after the 2020 provincial election. There are four candidates in the running. Liberal MLA Robert Gauvin, former MLA Donald Arsenault, former MP TJ Harvey, and businesswoman Susan Holt. The CBC reports that about 9,400 New Brunswickers have registered to vote in the leadership contest, compared to the 19,000 who signed up in the leadership contest that chose Brian Gallant in 2012. Okay, that'll be it for this week's episode of the RIT Podcast. Please head over to theRIT.ca to see all the latest from me. Earlier this week, I posted a detailed analysis of the Conservative Leadership Fundraising numbers. All right, until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs>